Today's scripture, the first one is from Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From Jeremiah 17, 7 to 9. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? From Romans 12, 1 to 5. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Please stand now for the reading of the gospel. Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word of the Lord. You know, um, just before we begin, today's message, once again, will be the final uh, message in the series referring to themes of sexuality. So again, if you are concerned with your children around you hearing this content, uh, feel free to pause or take a step away and come back at a time that is more suitable for you. Now, as we begin, I want you to picture something. I want you to picture the map of the world. And how would you think it looks? Probably something like this, right? This is called the Mercator map. It's developed, it was developed in the 16th century by a Flemish cartographer named Gerardus Mercator. And Europe was particularly influential at the time, and so it's kind of centered in the middle of the map. However, because, as you know, the world is round in a globe, and therefore depicting a round globe on a flat surface has some challenges. Some accommodations have to be made. The North and the South Pole look much larger than they actually are. And the Northern Hemisphere appears larger than the Southern Hemisphere because of the focus on the Northern Hemisphere. Now here is a picture of a Gall-Peters map that attempts to make a better representation because it centers it on the equator. And so the Northern, the northern Hemisphere continents and the Southern Hemisphere continents are better scaled to one another. In fact, here is a picture of how many countries fit in the country uh, in the continent of Africa. You can see there that it can, Africa actually fits all the United States, all of China, all of India, most of Europe, and Japan, all within its area. So perspective changes everything. A different perspective changes how we understand the world we live in. 
And in this third way series, we've been spending much of our time addressing issues of sexuality and gender, and I hope you're beginning to see the importance of perspective. We have perspective towards scripture and how we interpret it. We have a certain perspective towards sexuality and gender based on our experiences and our contexts. And particularly in this series, we have a certain perspective towards the world and the categories the world uses to frame this particular conversation. I hope you've been able to hear how the way of Jesus and the way of God's kingdom doesn't always fit the categories that we think in. So living a life in God's kingdom is about shifting our perspective. Today we're going to talk about a shift in perspective on how we think and talk about gender and sexuality. And here I'm relying on the work of Janelle William Paris. The book is here on the screen here, uh, The End of Sexual Identity. And I encourage you to pick up a copy if you're interested in looking further. Janelle actually attended WCF as an American Studies uh, student uh, many years ago, and I had a good chat with her over the phone a couple weeks back. So I credit her for many of the good ideas here, and I take the blame for anything that sounds confusing. Now, in a world that, is, that we live in, there's a problem with sex. Sex and sexuality have become more than they used to be. Our sexual attractions are now seen as a fundamental part of our human identity, who we think we are. And they are seen as necessary for our personal sense of fulfillment. Sex is more than it used to be. But sex, at the same time, is less than it used to be. Sex is seen as something to be done for pleasure and recreation. And for many in modern society, sex is also considered to be morally neutral. In the 1960s, uh, in addition to affording meaningful freedoms for women, reliable and accessible birth control has shifted our attitude towards sex. When the Bible was written, the delay between when you experienced puberty and when you got married was a matter of years, not decades, as it could be nowadays. You know, in the Roman Empire, teenage girls would get married around in their mid-teens. Boys would be in their late teens when they got married. But because of accessible and reliable birth control, having babies and creating family units and adhering to religious views now are no longer automatically linked to sexual activity. So sex is more than it used to be, but also less than it used to be. And then there's, there's even the question of what actually is sex. If a couple or an individual achieves orgasm by oral or manual stimulation, does that constitute sex or not? What about heavy petting between a couple or, or sexting or online chatting? Does that constitute sex? What about virtual sex or sex with robots, which are already on our doorsteps now? For many, this is all considered safe sex because of limited risk of pregnancy and transmission of sexually transmitted infections and diseases. Now, as medical science develops further, I wonder, you know, if there will come a time when humans will not only be able to conceive and inseminate artificially, but perhaps even gestate and deliver a baby outside the womb. So what then will sex be? The confusion also affects this idea of virginity. For most of human civilization that has been patriarchal, virginity has been measured by whether a woman's hymen has been broken. And it didn't say much about what a man, man did with their genitals before marriage. So in modern society, depending on whether you believe oral sex to be sex, you can also believe whether virginity is lost along with it at the same time. So depending on how you define it, you can also lose your virginity without having intercourse, or you can have sex, whatever that looks like, and still be a virgin. And so for Christians, who often 
presumed that a sexual ethic is shared by many. This range of understandings regarding sexual activity make it really challenging for us to consider what is appropriate sexual behavior as a follower of Christ. And parents, if you haven't already begun to have these kinds of conversations with your children at age-appropriate times, they're going to find out about it anyways. So start at home. And I think it's also safe to say that couples, many couples in the world today, are likely engaging in sexual activity before even they're considered a couple, considering a relationship. But Scripture does have something to say about what we do with our bodies and who we do it with and when we do it with them. And for today's message, I'm not going to get into all the particular sexual ethics of activity, but they're used to illustrate how when we talk about specifics about sex, it's challenging to figure out how it all fits together by ourselves. We need others in on this conversation, particularly if we're trying to seek how scripture informs our ethics. So we're going to just do a quick uh, history of sex and sexuality. Now, to understand how this ancient text like the Bible, speaks to our contemporary categories, requires a bit of a history. So, in Scripture, same-sex relations were referenced in earlier English translations as sodomy, the now-dated term, not homosexuals. The word homosexual doesn't actually show up in the English Bible until 1946. And it was then that, uh, but that that doesn't mean that the Bible was silent about same-sex activity. Sodomy was still understood as non-vaginal sexual intercourse. Referring to our message a few weeks back, the word sodomy in, in Scripture was used to refer to sex where a man took the dominant or penetrative role with another man who took on the submissive or receptive role in sexual relations. God's people were called to repent of sodomy. Now, eventually, this moral and religious framework for same-sex activity shifted to um, uh, not just a moral violation, but a legal violation, which we now see remains in some of the, the more traditional countries around the world. Now, it's only until the early 20th century when the terms homosexuality and heterosexuality became defined and understood as a medical condition or a sexual orientation rather than just a behavior. Prior to this period, people generally did not think of themselves in a category of being heterosexual. There was a generally accepted morality regarding your sexual feelings and activities, but they were something to be managed. So, this term, and with so, the term homosexuality was first used by doctors to refer to people who were considered abnormal in society because they sought sexual pleasure without concern for procreation. And the term homosexual is used less now in favor of the acronym LGBTQ+, because its original association is with a less than category, which is probably a good move. But they both share this relatively new assumption that the orientation of a person's sexuality also constitutes their sense of self. So the point in highlighting all of this history very quickly is is to recognize how our reading of Scripture is informed by our culture. We are products of the patterns of this world, and each human culture is a product of patterns of this world. And the work for Jesus' followers is to recognize the patterns that are going on, the patterns that are helpful and unhelpful, but also patterns that are unhelpful for honoring fellow human 
beings, as image bearers of God. In particular, the homosexual and heterosexual category, or common parlance of gay and straight, they, do, they can do violence towards our ability to honor and care for one another as fellow human beings made in the image of God. And while these distinctions can be helpful in describing a sincere and genuine reality for many and for our attractions, they also set up this inherent dynamic of othering a, 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 a someone who's different from you at the expense of honoring their image-bearing capacity. So, uh, Phyllis wrote, read for us Romans 12, and Romans 12 too says this, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've been coming back to this passage over and over again in this series because Paul is reminding us to not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing your mind involves recognizing the categories by which you make distinctions, but also recognizing the faulty assumptions that inform those distinctions. Patterns are not just the patterns, but also the assumptions that create those patterns. And so when it comes to our sexuality, to say that a particular sexual identity is more Christian than another is missing the point of seeing these faulty connections that we are making between our sense of self and sexual identity and human desire and identity. In Eugene Peterson's rendition of this passage, Jeremiah 17, he reminds us of how fickle our desires are and our feelings are. And how difficult it is to look within ourselves and figure out really what's going on and what we do with all of our desires and all of our attractions. He says the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful. It's a puzzle that no one can figure out. And only God knows and gets to the root of things as they really are at the center of your being. You know, when I pass by a Krispy Kreme sign, I'm attracted by these neon lights that say, Hot now. Everything about me is telling me to pull over, pull into the drive-thru, order a dozen donuts, and eat two, three, four? How many have done that? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. Who's done more than four? No. Uh, and, so, and at that moment, I, knew, I believe that that's going to make me happy. And violating that feeling is a violation of my sense of happiness. Now, you might say, okay, Andrew, attractions to Krispy Kreme donuts are understandable, but they're rather trivial, or maybe not so trivial for some of us, compared to our sexual desires. But can we say the same thing? I can say the same thing about my attraction to people who are not my wife, Julia. I don't know about you, but I'm always trying to sort out what to do with these attractions to identify the false hopes and, and the, the, the true fears that are beneath them and to direct my energies and intentions, attentions to more fruitful endeavors and God-honoring endeavors, and ultimately to honor Julia and the covenant I've made with her for the rest of my life. You know, as followers of Christ, we believe that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so for us to determine our sense of self, our sense of belonging, and sense of happiness by looking within is like trying to shoot at a moving target that we can't even see. You know, many Christians have come to believe that heterosexuality is less sinful or more holy than 
homosexuality. But Paul writes this in her book, saying, Swept along with the development of the societies in which we live, however Christian, Christians have come to believe that what a person does sexually represents more than an adherence to or violation of God's law. It determines the kind of person you are. So, the, what we do sexually determines the kind of person you are. That's an assumption. But by affiliating with heterosexual, heterosexuality ourselves, we show our acquiescence to the notion that sin or the holiness is really linked to the sinner or the saint. So what Paris is doing is putting a finger, a significant misstep on traditional Christian view of sexuality. By assuming what a person does sexually, straight or gay, determines the kind of person you are and the kind of Christian you are, you're giving too much credit to a sin being a fundamental part of our being. We are giving sex and these categories more weight than they should be, have in understanding what it means to be an image bearer of God. Scientifically, heterosexuality and homosexuality are imprecise descriptions of human sexuality. Their meanings have changed over the years because of the fluidity of sexual feelings. For instance, do you base your sexual sexuality on the feelings you feel or on your actual behavior? Or do you base it on the thoughts and fantasies that you have? Or do you base it on the people that you actually emotionally bond with? And even then, do you determine it based on how, how frequently do you experience those things in each one of those things? Because it's so difficult to define or to measure, it's helpful, it's even, is it even helpful to interpret and to describe and to categorize human sexuality along these lines of heterosexuality and homosexuality. See, renewing our minds about sexuality is all about understanding the categories without living under their power. It's understanding those categories without living under those powers. It doesn't mean you can't have those categories, but you don't live under the power of them. Our sexuality is best understood in light of being beloved creatures of God. Our identity comes from God, not from our sexual feelings. Now, if you're newer to WCF and you're listening today and you're trying to figure out if we're an affirming church or a traditional church, let me tell you this. We're trying to answer that question very differently. We acknowledge that the big C church has done great harm to sexual minorities. We have much to improve in this area, but the underlying assumption of that question is that a person's sexual desires and their attractions are definitive for your sense of self and definitive for your sense of belonging. And these categories are unhelpful in creating a foundation of relationship and mutual understanding. The more crucial question that we want everyone to ask coming into WCF are these. Are we bearing God's image more faithfully in our lives? Are we centering Jesus in our lives? Those are the kinds of conversations that we want to have with one another and in trust. As a diverse community of followers of Jesus, we long to be a community where we can have those conversations with one another, humbly, transparently, and with incredible grace extended towards one another. Now, so I've kind of deconstructed these categories. So what does a Christian faith actually offer for us? How about holiness instead of happiness? How about holiness instead of happiness? 
John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church and of the what is known as the Holiness Movement. He once described, holiness is love of God and of neighbor. He boiled it down to this. Holiness is love of God and love of neighbor. He takes the great commandment of Jesus and says about what true holiness is and what it looks like. Wesleyan theologian Mildred Wincoop unpacks this theology of love. And she says that it's not so much about our behaviors that constitute Christian holiness, as we're often inclined to think. But it's more about this dynamic relationship that we have with the living God. She comments saying this, Holiness is love locked in on the true center, Jesus Christ our Lord. Being true, all of the self, and progressively all of life, comes into harmony and wholeness and strength. In other words, Holiness here is love of God and love of neighbor that brings wholeness and harmony to more and more of myself and to more and more of the life that we know. True holiness brings wholeness to more and to all. Holiness makes sense of more of what we more of makes more sense of what we know rather than an attempt to cut off and define more boundaries so that we don't have to confront what is unknown or uncomfortable to us. And I think she is describing what Jews call shalom in the Old Testament. Holiness can easily become some measure of base, uh, uh, based on, of morality, based on our behavior. But what if we began to measure holiness as a measure of our belovedness in Christ? Love does move us towards right behavior. doesn't mean that there's no right, wrong behavior. But it doesn't move us there for the wrong reason. Rather than happiness or being straight or being okay with being gay, what if holiness became the measuring stick that followers of Jesus began to navigate together? At least holiness in this sense. You know, sexual identity, sexual attractions and activity matter. But they are not essential to our sense of self and our belonging. And when people say, I can't come to this church because it's not affirming, or I can't come to this church because it's not traditional, this categorization doesn't serve us well because they demand separation and exclusion from one another. Sexual identity categories may still exist, but they are not ultimate determiners of who is in and who is out. Rather, it's the categories of holiness and the character of Christ. It's the character of the fruit of the Spirit that's evident in our lives. It's a category of categories of ongoing repentance, of transformation, and of renewing of the mind that take place in communion with other sisters and brothers in Jesus. These are the categories that are meant to mark followers of Jesus as followers of Jesus. So, what if we are to read Romans 12, accompanied by Mark 1.15, as Phyllis read for us. When Jesus begins his ministry, the very first message he preaches is, repent and believe in the gospel, in this good news. When we read that side by side with Romans 12, we see holiness accompanied by repentance. And if you've been around the Christian church for a while, we might have this idea that repentance is only about feeling sorry for our sins and making a change in behavior so that we're no longer sinning. Our sin, in a sense, is cured when we repent. 
But in the context of this conversation about sexuality, this is the dilemma that many Christians feel stuck in amidst this divisive debate. What part of our sexuality and our sexual activity is actually sinful? What is God okay with or not okay, God, uh, not okay with? What can be cured? So what I offer is perhaps another more important step than we can take. And that's seeing holiness as love of God and love of neighbor. You take that and you combine it with this more expansive and significant understanding of repentance. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for repent is metanoia. It suggests both a feeling of remorse and being converted, a change, but also to change one's mind. Huh. Where do we hear that again? Yeah, Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What if repentance is not so much about emphasizing, curing, and fixing the problems in our lives? What if we saw repentance as also a shifting in perspective, a changing of our minds, a renewing of our minds regarding the patterns of this world and the categories we think in? Repentance is then also changing categories of how we see ourselves and how we see others. This perspective shifts the emphasis from cure to care. From cure to care. You know, sin and brokenness are still real things to address in our lives. But this perspective shifts also our, this perspective shift also shifts our posture. It shifts it from judgment to discernment. You know, Christians have typically set up an adversarial relationship with sexuality. You're the judge, and you have this thing called sexuality here, and you're, you're either in line or you're an offender with your sexuality. But this approach treats our sexuality as something our morality does the policing on. John Wesley quotes Paul's second letter to Timothy, describing this kind of morality that is divorced from relationship with God and with others as something called having a form of godliness, but without its power. Having a form of godliness without its power. But other Christians, they take and judge sexuality positively, saying, well, God made our bodies and our souls, and all of our sexualities and gifts are intended by God, and therefore they are holy as they are. But unlike the adversarial approach to judging, this inclusive approach is also judging but it's a judgment of absolution. We're making judgments. We are the judges, making a judgment on what we do with this sexuality. But in this case, we're saying, that's okay. In both instances, we can have forms of godliness by denying its real power. The real power of godliness, we find, is in fact in holiness. Holiness in its ever-expanding ability to love God more and to love others more. So rather than characterized by being characterized by judgment, what if a life of repentance was marked also with a life uh, of discernment? Judgment is about making the decisive call about our sexuality, locking it up on one end or setting it free on the other. And that decision is final. But as something as com- for something as complex and as vulnerable as human sexuality, discernment is slow to judge. Discernment takes time to observe 
and to listen and to figure out what's going on inside. Discernment asks, what are the false hopes that I have? What are the real fears that are driving my thoughts and my actions and my attractions? Discernment acknowledges our traumas. They're real things, but without giving them more power over our lives than they deserve. Discernment involves determining right and wrong, but it, involves, it also involves a deep knowing of my story and of the person's story and their journey along. One of our elders, Kurt Thompson, shares in his books about the value of group therapy that he's witnessed in his clinical practices. These groups are known as, are referred to as being known groups, where participants rewrite the stories of their lives in the context of meaningful community. And as someone has come to know and love and appreciate Kurt, I know that he doesn't just write about it and talk about it these practices of group discernment. He seeks them out himself and he submits himself to others so that he too can be known and he can know others well with all of his struggles and all of his shame, but also with his gifts. You know, compared to judgment, discernment offers a way to acknowledge the uniqueness of every person's story and their nuances. And in a world that is seeking happiness and especially an avoidance of suffering, Discernment offers something else. Discernment in the kingdom of God offers this paradox, this acknowledges this paradox of both blessing and suffering that are simultaneous partners in this way of holiness that Jesus calls us to. Holiness involves both blessing and suffering. Our sexual attractions and behaviors may never be resolved completely in this life, but our sexual lives can be aligned with our spiritual lives. And when these are aligned, aligned, they are characterized by humility, by transparency, by forgiveness, by repentance, by and, and acknowledging sin and restor, restoration in God. It you begin to see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and, kind, uh, and self-control. All these things that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. In that letter to the Galatians, he's writing about a dispute in that church about two very important categories for faithful Jews at the time. Following Jewish calendars and following the food laws of the Torah. These were patterns of thinking that the Jews needed to be renewed. And here Paul is saying that these fruits of the Spirit are the fulfillment of what that Jewish law was intended to accomplish. And in Christ, these qualities of a holy life are made possible by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work within us, rather than from behavior without. The fruits of the Holy Spirit reveal a truly holy life. It's in this context of community where we are known and we can know others that we can best celebrate the blossoming of these gifts in our lives. As a family of God, living in humble and transparent community with one another, seeking to discern rather than to judge, we find that the Spirit begins to bear its fruit amongst us. And that's what the community of Jesus is called to, a shift in perspective, not only in matters of sexuality, but in all matters of life. Now, as this takes place, we find that the categories that we are told are essential to our sense of being and sense of belonging. They no longer hold their sway over our lives as they once did. 
our lives become a more faithful reflection of God's image, which is, after all, all we are created for. May it be so.